As you dive into this teaching from High Point Church, we pray that it will help you grow in your faith as you believe in, belong to, and become more like Jesus. If these messages bless you, would you consider giving back in support of this ministry? You can give and learn more about High Point at www.highpoint.church. <laughs> Appreciate the early enthusiasm of the applauder over there. I do. Appreciate that. Hey, good to see you. Ed Stetzer here, teaching pastor at High Point. This is actually my, my uh, last sermon in the United States for the foreseeable future. So we're, um, and again, I'm on sabbatical. Some of you uh, follow my social media are aware that I'm on sabbatical. I'm a professor and a dean at Wheaton College on sabbatical. And on Friday, we, we moved to Oxford for the uh, fall semester, though they don't call it fall in England, they call it autumn. Uh, so I have to get you saying autumn and other fancy words. Um, and so, and so, but I'm not on sabbatical from High Point, so I'll actually be back here preaching in uh, mid-October. Uh, in I'm coming back once a month in November, uh, December, and then um, again, if you're all on social media, we move into California for a few months. But again, I'm not on sabbatical from High Point, so I'll be here once a month and different campuses, sometimes here. So, but it's good to good to be here today. Good to share it with my church family uh, one last time before we. We get on a plane this, uh, this Friday for, for Oxford, so it should be interesting. Um, this, is, this is like like a very interesting letter. And so today is going, and maybe I'm maybe, uh, Craig, maybe in hindsight, I'm not the best person to preach in this letter because you have to go a little professor mode. And so some of you are gonna love professor mode. Some of you are gonna be like, ooh, okay. So, um, but there's so much going on in this letter that we got to kind of walk through it to get a feel for it. Um, and and I've kind of got like a, a unique passion and interest in this. Uh, again, just for a little background, if you're a guest or if you're watching online for the first time, um, we're going through a series called Open Letters, and we're studying each of the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And you hear the book of Revelation, you expect things to be a little complicated, maybe to be a little hard to explain. Uh, it's called Revelation because there's some revelations that are in here. We want to look at them. And this is actually, this is a letter written to a church in Thyatira, which is, um, it's, and we're calling today's message Dear Corrupt Church. So again, this is not a happy story here, Dear Corrupt Church, we're going to look at today. But um, this is this is like a small church in a small city in the middle of nowhere. So this is not like a super, uh, like Ephesus is like, wow, this is a big, important church. Or, or uh, you go through these other things, you know, that, that are Laodicea. I mean, these were significant places. And again, I'm, there are no unsignificant places to God. But this is kind of a surprising letter because it's this little church in this little town. Now, if you've gone to, I, I've actually done, I visited all the cities that we're going through uh, right now. And I was, uh, I was, I remember recorded and live on the internet. So let's just say I was on a tour, um, on a tour of vacation or something like that. Um, because we don't wanna say any more on this. Um, but the, 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 when you go to, when you go to Thyatira, uh, you, you actually find, like the ruins are in the middle of this, the modern city, but there's like, it's hardly anything. It's just this little place. Um, and so, so actually to read the passage today, this is in, the, in a different translation that we use, it's called the CSB. But to read the passage today, I thought what we'd do is we'd ask Ed to read the passage today. Maybe you heard the expression, two Eds are better than one. Um, I know, it's a dad joke, I know. Uh, or a preacher joke, or a preacher dad joke, they're all bad. Uh, but, but I'd like you to watch this. This is actually from the ruins of Thyatira uh, in modern day Turkey that this letter is written. But you can see just how 
small this little spot is and how insignificant this little town was 2,000 uh, years ago. Let's take a look. Hi, I'm Ed Stetzer. I am here in Thyatira with a group of pastors and leaders that have traveled with us as we're looking at the seven churches, letters written to them in the book of Revelation. And here we come to the uh, church at Thyatira. Now, the church at Thyatira is, uh, this is actually the basilica that would be the, the, the successor of the church that, that Jesus would speak to and John would write to here in the book of Revelation. But we've, we've taken a look through it, and we, but we look around the city. We're surrounded in a city filled with people. Um, and, and when we see this picture here at Thyatira, here's, here's what it says about Thyatira. It says, to the angel in the church of Thyatira write, the Son of God, the one whose eyes are like a fiery flame and whose feet are like fine bronze, says, I know your works, your love, your faithfulness, your service, your endurance. Your last works are greater than the first. But I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and teaches, then deceives my slaves to commit sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she doesn't want to repent of her sexual immorality. Look, I'll throw her into a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless she repent of her practices. I'll kill her children with the plague, and then all the churches will know that I am the one who examines minds and hearts, and I will give each of you according to your works. I will say to the rest of you in Thyatira, Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who haven't known the deep things of Satan, as they say, I don't put any burden on any other burden on you, but hold to what you have until I come. The victor and the one who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he will shepherd them with an iron scepter. He will shatter them like pottery. Just as I have received this from my father, I will also give him the morning star. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So when I was there, we were actually surrounded by the city. Um, like I said, we were on this, this, this tour, uh, this tourist trip, because it would be illegal to do anything else in Turkey. Um, we were, I was, I was actually on top of that, that place where I put my Bible was actually, uh, actually had the names of gods etched into it, false gods etched into it. A basilica is not just a church, later it would become a church. But, but so, so this is a little town in a, a little church in a little town without a lot of significance. So why include this? The Lord in his sovereignty had a plan, had a purpose. So when we're gonna look at Dear Corrupt Church, I wanna look at that because there's, there's some historical things that take place and some things I want you to know about what we call genre that help you understand a little bit about this passage. But let's follow the outline. The outline's actually been the same now for weeks because the outline of all the letters to the book of Revelation are the same. And it starts with a proclamation to proclaim. And this is about the church of Thyatira and the proclamation to proclaim. So it says this, and to the angel in the church of Thyatira write, the words of the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are burnished bronze. Right, so a couple things about this, the geography, right? It's a smaller city. It's probably, it's more of a, I don't know what we'd call it, more of a manufacturing community. What they specifically manufactured were textiles, uh, particularly um, manufacturing and farming. And they actually were famous for making a purple dye. I know that seems strange, but if you go to certain places, like if you go to between Erie, Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 10% of the molded plastic in the world is made there. So there's sometimes places that just make things and they're known for making those things. I used to live there, so that's the only reason 
reason I know that. Um, and so Lydia in the book of Acts chapter 16 is actually from this city and she's a dealer. It says she's a dealer in fine, fine purple and a seller of purple goods. So she purple was kind of the, the new hot color and there was a process to manufacture it. They were the experts on this. And so I do love also how all these letters mention something unique about Jesus as well. Notice in the middle of verse 18 uh, what it says. Well, let me, let me actually show you where the map is. Sorry, let me show you where it is on the map just to remind you where we are. So um, major, more major cities around here. Uh, Thyatira, not as major a city, but all of these in what is today modern-day Turkey, all of these... Um, all of these actually very few Christians left here. The, uh, what's fascinating is that, um, there's a lot of fascinating things, is that the, uh, the, the church until 1922, there was a continuing presence of what's called the Orthodox Church, Big O Orthodox Church. Those of you who might be Russian or Ukrainian might have Big O Orthodox Church backgrounds um, and, or others. And so since till 1922, and then in 1922, uh, the, the government, which is then uh, Muslim, but trying to be secular is pretty complicated, they actually deport all the Christians out of this city, uh, Thyatira. And so, and, and they, they'd send them to Europe primarily. So today, if you would be an Eastern Orthodox church member in England, like, or Great Britain or, or, or Malta, if you would be there. So we're, we're going to be on Friday, right? So if you're Orthodox, you're actually the boss of your church. The bishop of your church is called the Bishop of Thyatira and England. So it's actually that, that connection. So 1922, they, they sent them all up to there as well. So, so again, so there's a lot going on historically about this church. So I think one of the reasons the Lord included this letter here. Um, I love that they all represent something different about Jesus. Verse, in the middle of verse 18, it says, Jesus is the Son of God. To the angel in the church of Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, this is important for us to get to why are we ramping up the symbolism, okay? So we don't hear Jesus referred to a lot as eyes like a flame of fire, except in the book of Revelation, or feet like burnished bronze, except in uh, the book of Revelation. So that gets to the issue of, again, this is the professor mode, so forgive me, but I think it's, it will help us understand. This gets a little bit to the issue of what we call uh, genre. So there are certain, there's always a genre. Like if you read poetry, that's a genre. Um, if you read fiction, that's a genre. We already sort of know, like you can actually go on Netflix and you can pick your genre of movies. It'll say genre. So there's a type of movie, or in this case in the Bible, it's a type of literature. So genre would include the law, right? We know that, we've heard of that. The gospels are a genre. Uh, the epistles or the letters are a genre. So the question is, what kind of, Bible writing is this. And this is where it gets a little tricky. It's obviously a letter. The name of this series is a letter, but it's in the book of Revelation, which is what we call apocalyptic genre. Uh, apocalyptic is, is uh, the, the goes to the Greek word for that, which is revelation. So in the apocalyptic genre, there's all kinds of symbolism. There's all kinds of symbolism. Uh, uh, you know, you know I'm, I'm gone next week, so I'm, like, I'm moving to another country. So if you want to demand next week that Pastor Ron and the whole team continue into the book of Revelation, oh, there's some symbolism that we're going to spend a lot of time on. But right now we're kind of doing, we're in the book of Revelation, but we're in the letters where there's some of that sort of uh, symbolic meaning. We're going to see that in just a minute. Now, now it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you're, you can't take the whole Bible and try to make it into symbols, right? Uh, when it says Jesus died on the cross for our sin and in our place, that's not a symbol, that's a factual reality. But there are some parts of the Bible that are intentionally written to be read symbolically. 
Um, and we're going to see that in just a minute with this a woman named Jezebel, who almost highly unlikely there's actually a woman called Jezebel, because uh, there was a woman called Jezebel in the Old Testament, and probably what they're saying is that woman's a Jezebel. So, so, that's prop, so it's symbolic language intentionally for us to see as symbolic language. That's where it gets a little bit complicated. But, but here, Jesus, the Son of God, right? This is the only time we see this in the book of Revelation. It's used 15 times in John's other writings, over 80 times in the New Testament. And it's a reminder of his humanity as well as his deity. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Um, fire symbolizes, hear the word symbolizes, it symbolizes his searching judgment. He sees everything. Nothing escapes his penetrating gaze. <coughs> Excuse me. His feet are like burnished bronze, okay? We don't think of bronze in the same way they would think of bronze, right? Now, Jesus' feet are literally not burnished bronze. His feet, we actually know. We, 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 he has scars on his feet, right? He's resurrected, but his resurrected body still has scars on his feet. But bronze symbolizes his strength. It's a symbol of his strength and stamina. He would kind of stomp out, in this case, the corruption of the church and the world. Okay, like all the letters in the book of Revelation, we then get some praise to applaud, which is a good model, by the way, for all of us, is to, before you have something to say that's critical, It'd be good to say something that's positive. So let's take a look at a praise uh, to applaud. And it goes through these very significantly and quickly. So it's sixfold, right? It gets, if you will, six gold stars, right? Um, and, and we actually highlight them all. One, two, three, four, five, six. So, so we've highlighted them all. So it says, um, uh, uh, for their works, uh, they knew that wasn't how they got to heaven, but rather that's how they uh, showed their Christian faith lived out. They had plenty of good works as a result. Small church doing good things, right? For their love, it's a Greek word here, agape. It's a self-sacrificing love. Um, they knew what it meant to put others' needs ahead of their own. They would give you uh, the shirt off your backs if you need. They were a loving church. Um, they much, much like, much like many of you, uh, for their faith. <coughs> Excuse me. This is a reference to their faithfulness, right? They're faithful to God, his calling as individuals and his church. It also helps us to understand some of the city there, right? The city was known for worshiping, well, it was under a different name, but basically Apollo. Uh, he was their Greek sun god, right? And there's a huge shrine that was dedicated to him. That was the only big thing probably in the town. And the city was filled with uh, what we call trade, like trade unions due to manufacturing. And if you were in the trade and you refused to bow to the God of the trade, you would lose your job. So they were faithful in the midst of that, right? For their service, right? Uh, the pastor wasn't standing up begging people to serve. They, they were serving in different ways. Uh, who knows? Um, you know, for in our case, it'd be greeters, ushers, working in children, sorting items in the care center. They would see a need and they would meet a need for their patient endurance, right? Uh, they are, these actually, the English words come from one compound Greek word. It literally means um, under and the other means remain. And so under remain, they did. It's the opposite of cut and run. Uh, I like to call it staying power. They had staying power. It's like uh, when you remain under difficult circumstances and learn the lesson God wants you to learn. That's what this church did. And then lastly, um, it says your latter works exceed the first. So um, it's interesting. It sounds a little bit like maybe in contrast to the church 
the Ephesian church, right? If you remember, they left their first love and they were told to redo the works they did. We, we went through that, if you remember. Um, that's because they had uh, their duty displaced their devotion, but here their devotion was fueling their duty and it was a result of their love from God. So, so just walking through the same, the same outline, we're doing the same outline for weeks, just with different applications. A proclamation to proclaim, a praise to applaud, and then a problem to solve. And this is where we got to get into some of the Huh, some of the, the little bit more complicated details, right? Verse 20 says this. Let's look at verse 20. This, the number, number next is a problem to solve, and this is verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, um, there could be a person there named Jezebel, but that's not a name that most people were naming their kids after Jezebel and King Ahab in the Old Testament. Okay, so it would just kind of be unusual. Here's my little girl, and she's named after a really terrible person in Jewish history. Um, we don't generally do that, right? We don't have children named Adolf today. It's just not a common thing. You sort of say, no, we're not going to name somebody, somebody terrible. Um, and so, so probably, um, and particularly since the book of Revelation has a lot of symbolic language, it's like, and they would all know who it was. Now, don't misunderstand. So in other genres, like in the book of Philippians, um, Paul names two women, Yodia and Syntyche, um, for their conflict in the church. And 2,000 years later, all we know about them is they had some sort of argument in the church. And we're going to get to heaven, and they're going to be the nicest people who had a bad day, and they ended up in the book of Philippians forever. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so again, uh, again, I, I think that's, you know, that's important. I think it's, it is right to be able to sometimes say, hey, this person is being divisive. It is right to be able to say that. But because it's a small church and because it's in a small town, everybody knew who this was. We don't, which is probably okay, right? So Jezebel was a self-professed prophet who is leading the people of God away. And this is what happens with King Ahab. She's married to King Ahab. This is 1 Kings chapter 16 through 18. Um, now, so it wasn't, you know, Jezebel reincarnated. It was somebody who was uh, a Jezebel in the biblical term. Now, uh, I wouldn't use that term for people today, um, but the, uh, we don't know what it was. We don't know if she set up a brothel down the road and said, um, you know, getting people, had food trucks and trying to get people over to there because it, it relates to food and sexual morality. We don't know what's going on. Um, now, but this is where a little more context sort of helps. So the book of Revelation is probably, or close to, probably the last book written. In, and, and, and the book of Matthew is not the first book written. The, the first book written is actually 1 Thessalonians in time. So 1 Thessalonians is the first book written in the New Testament, probably the last book written is the book of Revelation. Um, and during that time, some things have been changing in the church. One of the things that's been changing in the church is there's been more and more prophets coming around. And this is a time we hear about a prophet just casually mentioned, there's like a prophet. Now we don't have at High Point Church like uh, an assigned prophet. There's not like, and these are the prophets at our church. So, so why not? If, if Ephesians chapter four says God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as shepherds and teachers, why don't we have that? Because we have, we have evangelists, we have shepherds and teachers. Um, uh, why don't we have apostles and prophets? So, um, so the apostles, uh, there are still people with apostolic gifting today, but the apostles, of course, those initial founders and leaders of the church, but in the early church, very quickly, 
particularly before 100 AD. So the book of Revelation is written, say, around 90 AD. And the book of Thessalonians is written probably way earlier, maybe in the 40s. Um, so you've got, by the time you get to the book of Revelation, a lot more prophets. And they're actually going around from church to church with prophetic words. Now, some of you are from a charismatic Pentecostal tradition, and this language sounds somewhat familiar to you. Just of interest, how many of you be in a Pentecostal charismatic tradition background? Okay, so this is not like, you've heard these kinds of words before. Um, and so, but it was kind of different. And historically, by the time you get to the New Testament, there are a lot of prophets going around. We actually have to go outside of the Bible to find that out. But if you go to a book called the, uh, the, the Shepherd of Hermas, or you go to something called the Didache, those are early books. Didache probably written around the same time of the book of Revelation, but not part of the Bible. And a lot of prophets in those. So, um, so, so and eventually what happens in Thyatira, uh, Thyatira actually becomes a center for a lot of this stuff, later on there's a movement called Montanism, and there's all kind of, it's, it's basically like a super duper charismatic movement that sort of uh, really divides in many ways the early church, and there's a big controversy about it. And Thyatira and that whole area around there, Phrygia, uh, yes, it's called Phrygia because it was cold. Um, so Phrygia, um, there's this whole, so all the charismatic stuff gets really, really, really out of control, where people are just coming in and having prophetic words with one another, and et cetera, et cetera. So um, by the time we get to this letter, the fact that there's a prophetess who's prophesying things that lead people in the wrong direction is actually probably more common than we think. It's just we don't have a lot of letters written at 90 AD. So, so the book of Revelation, written around then, because it's later, has this. But if you look at other Christian stuff, for example, there's a guy in the Bible named Clement. He's mentioned in the Bible. Well, he actually becomes a leader in the church in Rome, and he writes letters. And if you read his letters, you'd hear more about some of these things, like all these prophets. And what are these, all these prophets doing? So, so Jesus, in this letter that John records, says there's this woman who's prophesying, this, this woman that is called Jezebel, probably symbolically, this woman's prophesying called Jezebel, and she's prophesying untrue things. And what are these untrue things she's prophesying? She's prophesying untrue things that have to do with something related to sexual morality and something related to eating food sacrificed to idols. And I say, why food sacrificed to idols? Well, that actually becomes a thing in Acts 15, and the, the, the apostles actually make some rules about that. So maybe... Jezebel, this, Jeze this person who's called Jeze uh, Jezebel, this person who's called Jezebel, maybe she's prophesying something contrary to what the word of God and the apostles have actually decided because that becomes a problem. It's still a problem today, right? So I came to Christ in the charismatic movement and, uh, and, and still you know, hold that all the spiritual gifts are for, are for today. And I'm sure that some of you are gonna ask more questions about that afterwards. I'll be over there fielding your questions about the role of prophecy in the early church. So I'm available afterwards to ask, answer any questions that you have. Um, but, but here's the thing I want you to see, is that um, what happened in that movement and what happened, what I saw happen in some, in some of the extremes, now we, our charismatic Pentecostal sisters and brothers we're deeply thankful for. We're not in that theological stream, but we're deeply thankful for. I believe all the gifts or Holy Spirit gifts are available to us today. But what seems to be happening then is what I saw happen in some of my early spiritual journey. There were people who would say, the Lord told me blank, and it was contrary to the word of God. So I, I heard one time somebody who was having problems in their marriage said, well, the Lord gave me a word that I'm supposed to leave my wife and marry this other woman. I said, that's not the Lord. That's a spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit who's speaking to you. So, 
So Jez, this, Jez, this Jezebel character seems to be prophesying something contrary to the word of God. Now it's a small church, right? So who knows how small? They didn't have buildings back then, so it could have been just one group of people meeting in one house. So if there's 20 people meeting in there and then four of them have sort of gotten caught up and they're listening to this woman and she's leading them to not follow the apostles' directions and she's leading them against the word of God, this is the kind of prophecy that we might, or the response that we might expect. Let's keep going through this as well. Notice verse 21. It says, God gives her time to repent. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So we know it's sexual immorality of some sort. So he refuses to respond to that. Um, and Romans 2.4 says, um, tells us that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. So repentance is what she's called to. She's called to repentance. It literally means to agree with God. So her prophecies are probably in some way not agreeing with God. And then verse 22 says, behold... I'll throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her will, I will throw into great tribulation. So, um, I mean, the bed is probably not a mistaken reference, not just some casual reference. You want to commit sexual morality in a bed? I'll throw you in a bed, a bed of sickness. So the judgment that's actually there. Now, here's the thing. Is it, uh, it's very symbolic language, so is it a uh, physical bed? Uh, I mean, is it a physical sickness? It says, and those who commit adultery, I, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works, and I will strike her children dead. Is this a spiritual reference that she's, that, that she's leading people to spiritual sickness and death? Very well could be. Very well could be. We don't know, but it's such prophetic language. So you leading them astray leads to some pretty significant difficulties. And our sin doesn't just affect us and if she's leading people away. So when somebody comes into a church 2,000 years later and says, the Lord told me, which kind of is a prophecy kind of phrase, the Lord told me that we should, and it doesn't line up with the word of God. If we don't address it, it leads to spiritual sickness and death in that person and then the person that follows that person. Does that make sense? Okay, so I know we kind of went down quite a little uh, extra direction there. And we started out with me, a video of me showing a video of me, which seems to me to be very meta in and of itself. Um, but, but I want you to see that Thyatira is a real place with the symbolic language still points to a real issue. And the calling that she has here is to bear fruit, the Bible says to bear fruit, in keeping with repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, for godly sorrow produces repentance without regret, and worldly sorrow produces death. So he's, he's calling for genuine repentance. Genuine repentance, which, which again leads us to the next point in this, is that we got a problem to solve, and now we go to a plan to improve. A plan to improve, right? So, so what, is the, what is the situation here? What's the plan to improve here? It says, but to the rest of you, uh, in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching. Okay, so this is why we think that it's probably intentional symbolic language about a spiritual wrong that actually leads to sexual morality and disobedience to the teachings of scripture because it says teaching, right? So it's not just that they're, they're uh, sexual moral, though that's a, some sort of result of the teaching, but it says they don't hold this teaching who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Now, what in the world is that? Well, here's the thing. We have no earthly idea. Uh, but I mean, it's sort of feel, but there's something going on that they're leading them astray. Here's the, here's the thing. Um, the devil would much rather have you 
doing wrong thinking you're doing right than trying to convince you to do wrong. Does that, does that make sense? It's like, it's like, uh, it's just a variation. Well, I think I'm doing right. And the Lord told me, no, the Lord didn't tell you stuff that's contrary to his word. And so uh, maybe that's where they learned some of the deep things of Satan. To, to you, I say, I cannot lay on you any other burden. Okay, so you have, for those who haven't been caught up with this, and keep in mind, it's a small church in a small town in the middle of nowhere. So, um, so it may be that there's four out of 20 people says, but I, for the 16 of you, I don't lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Now, here's what's fascinating, right? So this is Jesus' words, and when people hear those words, a lot of the early Christians thought that that was coming like Thursday, like Jesus was about to come back. And, and it was a long time, still is a long time, right? So um, did they hold fast? And the answer is yes and no. Eventually, uh, you know, uh, Islam would sweep through Turkey, and Christians would be exiled in 1922. We'd be persecuted today. There might be 3,000 evangelical believers in the whole country. Um, and again, that's why when you, when you go there, you go on a tourist visit. Um, but the, the, the reality is, is that they held fast often at the point of death. And this is actually the second time Jesus has said, hold fast. We saw it last week. And Jesus says to do it till I come. That's a reference to his return. Hold fast literally means to hold on and not let go. It's what you do when you've got your five-year-old's hand and you don't, you don't want to, you know, you're crossing a busy intersection. You hold fast and do not let go. So and what I would say is that may very well be what we experience, right? So what happens in Thyatira, what's interesting is it actually becomes a growing church. At this point, it's like a, you know, it's a small church in a small city in the middle of nowhere, but it does become a more significant church. So if you open up a Bible, like a study Bible, um, one of the things you'll find is that, um, is that a lot, some of the commentators, like uh, there's a very famous, the most famous reference Bible in the world is called the Schofield Reference Bible. And in the Schofield Reference Bible, it actually says that these seven churches are actually ages of the church. And the Thyatira is an age that, you know, and they kind of lay it out. This is the first 300 years, this is the first 500 years, because they're taking it as symbolic and looking at the prophecy. I don't think that that's the case. But I think when it comes to Thyatira, there's a lot of warnings here that if you know history about what happens in Thyatira, you can actually see that the Lord was preparing. And so I think all the letters of the churches are for all the Christians today. And I think that's key, which leads us to the last thing is a promise to claim is a promise to claim. It says this, uh, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received the authority from my father. Okay, and I will give him the morning star. Now, now a lot of, again, super a lot of symbolism here as well. So what does all the symbolism mean? We see that we'll reign with him and it give us authority and responsibility for his kingdom. And this is somewhat of a picture of what happens in the millennium. Um, there be a picture of what we'll do during the millennial reign. That's when Jesus reigns. He comes back. He reigns for a thousand years here on earth. Uh, and and that, that's part of what's here. So we will actually rule with him in a world that is just and right 
for a thousand years, uh, and then uh, and then Satan is unleashed one more time, and then the end and all eternity comes. So he, to give I, to get to him, I will give the authority of nations. The him is not Jesus; it's actually us, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. That's actually the people of Thyatira, and therefore written to us. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron. Uh, as when the earthen pots are broken into pieces, again, more symbolism, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. Okay, so what's the morning star, right? So the morning star appears when the night is over and the new day begins. It's actually Venus is what this is often referred to as often as the morning star, because you can see it clearly from the east at the sunrise. Revelation 22:16 tells us Jesus is the morning star, uh, meaning that he will see us first as he ushers in the new age when he, uh, when he ends this world's long night of suffering, sin, and shame. So what is the morning star? We're actually not 100% sure. Uh, if you look at a really in-depth Bible commentary, they'll give you like seven options of what this could be. Um, and again, that's the way it is sometimes with apocalyptic literature. You have to become comfortable to a certain level, reading apocalyptic literature, like the book of Revelation, like some of the book of Daniel, you have to be comfortable saying, I don't get all this. Now, I know it's very strange to say, well, shouldn't I get all the Bible? You should get all the Bible that God intends you to understand plainly and clearly, and there's a whole lot of that. I'm not worried about the stuff in the Bible I don't understand, I'm just trying to keep up with the stuff I do understand. But when it comes to apocalyptic literature, it is veiled. It is, it is intentionally obtuse. You don't always know what it is until you look back afterwards and say, that's what it was. So be okay with that, because no, it's not intended. When you read the Gospels, you're supposed to know what's going on. The Gospels are written to explain things to you. When you read the epistles, you're supposed to know what's going on, how to respond, what the theology is, what to do. But sometimes people who read just the epistles and they get the book of Revelation, they say, well, I want to know everything what this means. Well, I do too, and one day we will, but probably when we're with Jesus. So the language, particularly the book of Revelation, is intended to be veiled in its references. So what is it? Well, I, I do think probably it points us to Jesus. He's our hope. Right, it says, it says, and I will give him the morning star. He's our hope, he's our light. He has an ear to hear, that's how all these end. He's an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let me close with this. There's a lot going on in this passage, but at the end of the day, it points us to the authority and power of Jesus and for us not to walk or live in contrary to what he says or what the word of God says. So when somebody comes with a message contrary to that, that's not from the Lord. As much as exciting as they may be, or as passionate as they may be, or as if they may seem smart or persuasive, if they teach anything contrary to the word of God, you should say, I don't believe them, I'm not participating with them. And this Jezebel figure is teaching something contrary to the word of God. We don't know all the details. We know it's leading to sexual immorality. We know it's leading to eating meat, sacrifice idols, which remember Acts 15 sort of is addressed by the apostles. So it's somebody contrary to the apostles' teaching. So my encouragement to you is let's stay focused on the who Jesus is as Lord and the authority of his word. And in doing so, we can, we can praise the Father. We can praise the Son. We can praise the Spirit three and one. So kind of as we close our message today, that you, you know the song, it begins with, in the darkness we were waiting without hope, without light, right? So we, we get a picture that the Lord Jesus has come and the book of Revelation is revealing these things. Again, reveal, revelation, it's apocalyptic. Revelation, it's the unveiling. We can see clearer, not everything we're gonna see fully understand the book of Revelation, 
but we can see clearer and we can praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Father, three in one. Thanks for letting me go a little bit of a deep dive in some of these passages, but let's pray and ask the Lord to guide us how we might respond. Lord, thank you that by your grace and your goodness, you've redeemed us, called us by name, sent us on a mission. Now we give you praise and glory because you came when we were without hope, without light. May you be glorified as we praise you. Let's stand together. And as we stand together, we're going to sing together. And we're going to make this our song of praise to who Jesus is.